Hey everyone, Fraser here. So welcome back to the new season of Universe Today's podcasts. I've wrapped up my two-month summer hiatus, and now I'm back recording interviews, doing live streams, question shows, all that good stuff. Now, we had a bit of a rocky start because I am no longer uh, living in my house with the same studio that I've been using for 15 years. Now uh, I'm living in a trailer as we build our new house and new studio. And so it was a bit of a rough start. I had to completely rebuild my computer system. Uh, and this is me apologizing in advance for the mediocre audio quality of the guest. Uh, it starts out really rough and I've tried to clean up the audio a little bit, but it gets better and better as I figure out what the problem is, but I don't completely solve it for this interview, but I think you'll find the, the conversation is so fascinating, so interesting, uh, that you're going to want to listen to it anyway. Uh, and I promise at this point I've solved the problem for future episodes not the next interview, but the interviews after that, uh, from this point going forward, I will have fixed. So I apologize in advance. If you can't take it, I understand. Um, the audio will get much better as we go forward. Thanks. Enjoy the episode. Oh, I see. I'm using a new audio output. Okay. All right. Uh, how about now? Let's try again. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. All right. Perfect. All right. So now people share. Yeah, I'm using a new I had to remove one of my audio devices. Okay, all right. Uh, so now people just tell me that you can hear the guest, although I think I can see the little the little line moving that says that you should be able to hear the guest. So I apologize to do this, but we're gonna have to do this all over again. Uh, so, so who are you <clears throat> and, uh, and what do you do? Yes, uh, so I'm, I'm Marcus. I'm a professor of astrophysics at Stockholm University. Uh, I work with, with exoplanets, basically anything that, that interests me uh, at the Max Planck Institute there. Uh, so that was, I took it in, in 2008, I started my PhD in 2005, so that was sort of uh, when people started trying to directly image planet, which is planets, which is really sort of the, the bulk of, of, of what I do. Um, and then, as you mentioned, uh, I was in, in Toronto uh, for one, uh, three years at the University of Toronto, and then in Princeton, uh, and then uh, a bit of a seizure in, in Belfast as well, uh, and now I'm in, in Stockholm. Right. In Sweden, where I, where I grew up. Um, so, and, and so how you came to my attention is that uh, you published a paper about a fascinating idea of connecting a starshade to ground-based observatories. And that sort of tickled a whole bunch of my sort of checkboxes there. So, so let's just talk about just this idea of what a star shade is first, and then we'll sort of talk about how it could be adapted to ground observatories. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if we, if we go even sort of just one step back to set the scene a little bit, um, obviously, you know, if you're trying to, to image a planet, which is what we, what we want to do, uh, a big problem that you have is that the planet is faint and it's very close to a very, very bright star. So the, the, the brightness distance difference between the planet and the star, if you're thinking about an Earth-like planet, say, around a Sun-like star, uh, that, that, that contrast, so the difference in light between the planet and the star is about a factor of 10 billion. So that's, that's obviously a, a, a big uh, difference. And that means that the light, uh, the, the very faint light that's coming from the planet very easily drowns out in the, in the much uh, more, uh, you know, much more intense light yeah. of the star. Uh, so you have to deal with that in, in various ways. 
And uh, the way that people have dealt with it classically is with a so-called chronograph. So you're, you're basically, you're putting uh, a, a thing in your instrument, which is meant to block out the light from the star physically, uh, but not block out the lights uh, that's coming from around the star so that you don't, so that you don't miss out uh, on the planets. Um, and so that, that's, that's a good way of doing it. It's a, it's a technique that's been developed over uh, you know, decades by now. And people have, have come up with uh, great ways to, to, to do that. Um, but it has certain limitations. Among other things, it, it puts very, very high constraints on the quality of the optics in your telescope, uh, for example. And, and, and even then, you know, it's, it's, even if you can achieve that, there are other difficulties. Right. It's very hard to make, it, to make it very broadband so that you can cover a wide range of wavelengths at the same time when you're taking, because what, the, what you want, what want to do in the end, right, is you want to, uh, see these planets and then we want to take their spectra right um, and, and and so like just having a really powerful telescope like if you had the most powerful possible telescope and you pointed it at some nearby star system that you knew there were planets if you just took your telescope pointed it at the at the star system you couldn't re reveal the planets because just the light from the star is just too bright Exactly. I mean, if, if you had a, a, like an, an imaginary telescope that was really, really enormous, you know, then at some point you will reach the, 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 the point where, where you get a, a small enough stellar leakage that it's not going to affect the planet. But that's, that's really a fantasy telescope. Right. If you want to do this, this in, in reality with, with uh, real telescopes, uh, then yes, you're, you're not going to see anything. Like if, if, you, if, you, if you imagine like the whole solar system at, you know, a, a few tens of, of, of light years, which might be what we're... Uh, talking about, I mean, and, and you try to take an image basically up to Neptune or something like that, covering the, the whole system. I mean, the, the, the whole field of right. would be white, basically. Right. So if you can like zoom in just to the point that you only look at the planet, then you're okay. But if you're, if there's any star in there, you're not going to be able to see it. Exactly. You're, you're sensitive enough to see the planet if it's, if it was as bright as it is and was isolated. But when it's next to the star, it just drowns out in, in, the, in the noise that leaks from the star. Right. Okay. Doing it on the telescope itself. Right. Exactly. So, so, so basically, you 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 put this this item. I mean, there are, as you say, there are lots of ways to do it. Um, and 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 it's it's inside of the telescope. So it's basically behind your primary mirror, um, and that means that it's affected by the diffraction properties of the telescope. You you can't escape that fact if you if you put your chronograph inside of of your telescope. Um, and, and that leads to all of these um, constraints that I was talking about, you know, that you really need a, a very, very good uh, telescope uh, to do this. Uh, and you need lots of other things to, to be right as well. I mean, we haven't even touched on the fact that we want big telescopes to do this, which means that uh, by and large, we're really tied to the ground because it's very expensive to launch these huge telescopes into, into space. Um, and that means that we have to deal with the atmosphere, mm -hmm. which is a, a, a nightmare because that, that messes up uh, the, the, the wave fronts so, of, of the light. So if, if something would look like a very nice point source, if you looked at it, you know, without an atmosphere, yeah. you mix in the atmosphere, it's, gonna, it's, it's a big blobby mess, right? And, right. And that's much more difficult. But I mean, with the latest, with the, with the existing telescope, say the extremely large telescope or sort of the very large telescope, uh, the Keck observatories, the Gemini, they have the adaptive optics to be able to partially deal with the disturbance of the atmosphere, but not fully, not to the same level as a space telescope. 
Exactly, indeed. So, so basically, um, if if you use adaptive optics, and basically this is the this is the technology that I alluded to that made it possible in sort of the mid twenty, the mid two thousands to actually start to image some exoplanets, and this is this this is adaptive optics. So basically, uh, correcting for what the atmosphere is doing uh, by changing. So 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 the, the the atmosphere is basically imposing distortions mm -hmm. on the on, on on the light that's coming in. Uh, and so you have your your uh, your telescope, and in your telescope you place a mirror that can change its shape. And so you try to monitor what the atmosphere is doing, and then you try to change the shape of the mirror, right? Um, in order to exactly compensate for uh, right. what the atmosphere is doing, and that gives you a much better spatial spatial resolution. Uh, so so then you can start to image some planets, mm -hmm. like giant young giant planets, which is what we can sort of do today. Uh, but it's still too difficult to image sort of Earth-like planets, for example. And I mean, we've seen some of the really incredible images coming out of, say, the Very Large Telescope and the Espresso instrument in infrared, revealing newly forming planets, multiple planets around, around star systems. And that's great, and it's mind-bending, but it's not the same thing as looking at a sun-like star and seeing an Earth-like planet with a blue ocean, etc., orbiting around it. Like, that's... That's what we really want to see. Exactly. I mean, that, that's what we're working towards, right? It's uh, of, of course there's lots and lots to learn about uh, these planets that we can see, and of course we're doing that work as well. You know, trying to understand how they how they form, which will also you know inform us of you know how Earth-like planets form and so on. Um, but indeed, I mean, what what I think I think it's fair to say that everyone who works with exoplanets, um, what they really want to achieve is to really study truly Earth-like planets. Uh, and, and especially, you know, if you can see an Earth-like planet around like a sun-like star, where you're really looking at something like home, right? Or that's potentially like, like home, like, like, like right. uh, a place that we know and where we know that life, for example, could, could thrive. And so, and so thanks to this power of adaptive optics, um, potentially the interferometry of putting multiple telescopes together, say with a very large telescope, the power of ground-based observatories is really starting to match and even exceed the capability of the space-based observatories, but still it's going to suffer these, these problems of the, of the atmosphere. So what are the, you know, so, so let's go back to this idea then of the starshade. How exactly. does the starshade work in helping to find planets? Yeah, so basically the, the starshade then in contrast to the uh, coronagraph is something that you put outside of the telescope and you have to put it at, at a very large distance away uh, from the telescope for, for, for the optics uh, to work out. Um, but basically uh, it's, it's, well, it, it's basically what it sounds like. It's a sort of uh, black thing uh, that, it, uh, that you put in front of the star. So basically you put it between your telescope and the, the star that you're looking towards so that it's it it blocks out the light from the star whereas planets uh, the light from planets can sort of uh, get through around the edges uh, of this uh, star shade uh, so you know like the, the the most intuitive thing that you might want to do is just to put to use like a round shade and 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 put that between your telescope and the star mm -hmm. Uh, but that doesn't uh, actually work because of, of, of diffraction. You get diffraction of light around the edges uh, of, of the starshade. Um, so uh, what you do instead is you, you, you give the starshade like a funny shape. It kind of looks like a flower uh, with, with, with uh, right. petals uh, going out from the center. 
Um, and that helps you uh, not diffract light. It, it cancels out the diffracted lights to a sufficient degree uh, that you can actually uh, get to these contrasts that you need uh, where you really block out enough of the starlight. And, uh, and, and how much of that light are you blocking out? Like, like how many orders of magnitude of light are you attempting to, to shade with this thing? Yeah, so, so basically what you're aiming for, right? Because as I said, everyone here in, in this game are aiming for 10 billion. One in 10 billion. And so the star yeah. is one in 10 billion or the, to, to be able to even see the planet, you've got to be able to let in one ten billionth the light of the star while blocking the star itself. Exactly. Yeah. So that tells you that you've got to have an extreme precision uh, to do that, right? I mean, right. To, to really not make a mistake with any of these 10 billion photons. Right. And so these, these star shades, I mean, these ideas have been around for probably about a decade now, and people have been proposing to sure. fly them either yes. as special exoplanet hunting missions on their own, or maybe even having them be a follow on mission. I know people have thought about using them for James Webb. I've seen proposals for using one for the Nancy Grace Roman telescope. Um, but you're suggesting that in fact, they could be used for a ground based observatory. Indeed. So, so I mean, it, it's exactly as you said, right, there, there are all these space missions with where you have a, a star shade in space, and you have a telescope in space. Um, and uh, you, you do exactly what we said, right? So you put the star shade between the telescope and the star uh, that you're trying to observe. Um, so uh, yeah, that's great because then you have a, you know, you have your telescope in space, so you don't need to worry about a lot of things like the atmosphere and things like that. But you do have to worry about the thing that the, the, the aspect of actually sending a big enough telescope into uh, space uh, that, that you can actually you know, get something out of, of, of the light that you're then receiving uh, from, from the planets. Uh, so the telescope has to be big enough, and that's really a, a sort of a, a, a limitation if you're working uh, in space. Uh, so uh, the idea that, that uh, I developed starting in, in uh, 2007, during the time of my, my PhD, um, was to actually ha have your star shade in space, uh, but relay the shadow of that star shade of that star shade uh, onto a spot on the on the ground where you have your telescope. So you're, you're letting your telescope right. stand in the shadow that you're casting uh, with the shade. Uh, which, uh, if, if you don't need to think about it for very long to understand that that's a geometrically difficult problem, <laughs> right. because uh, you know if, if you're thinking instantaneously, okay, at one given point in time, sure, I can place a, an occulter here. And I can have my telescope standing where it is on the ground, and everything will line up. But then, you know, in the next instance, the Earth will have, have rotated and moved rotated, uh, around its axis. So, so the, the telescope is now in a different place from the, where the shade is. And uh, your shade—you can't keep your shade fixed in space. It, it, it's, it's forced to move on, on a, on a um, Keplerian orbit in, in some sense, um, and so that will also move. Right. Uh, out of, of, of where it was uh, one instant ago. Uh, so basically, the, the, the trick of the game uh, is to try to match the, the, what the uh, movement that the occulter is doing in space to the motion that the uh, telescope is undergoing as the, the Earth is rotating for long enough that you can right. ma maintain this uh, shadow stable. Uh, so that you can use the, the telescope for 
uh, the observations that you want. And so how long do you need to be able to make an observation? Well, the nice thing about this, right, is that, uh, as I said, you can work with potentially really, really big telescopes, like the, the ELT, for example. Um, and so that means that you can actually, uh, okay, basically, the, the longer that you want to hold the shadow, the harder it is. I mean, you could hold it for, for many hours, but it would take a lot of fuel, basically, because you have to make corrections to the, to the right. uh, I see. orbit uh, or, 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 or of the star shade in, uh, all the while you're doing it. Um, so that's harder the, the longer you go. And that means, for example, that you know, if you spend all this fuel standing fixed on one target, you'd, maybe you don't have any fuel left to do the next target or whatever. So it, it becomes a, a difficult fuel budget problem. Um, however, fortunately, if you're using a really big telescope, you don't actually need that much time. You don't need it to keep it fixed for, for a very long time. Like the ELT, for example, could see an Earth-like Earth -like planet in a matter of, of, of a minute or something like that. Hmm. Um, so you, you really only, in principle, need to, to keep it fixed for, uh, for a few minutes, uh, depending on what you want to do, of course. If you don't want to take a spectrum, you want to stay on it for longer and so on. And so which orbits are, would work with this configuration? I mean, I'm imagining you've got the, you know, you've got your ground telescope. Obviously, there's like the geosynchronous orbits, which would keep the starshade roughly above the telescope at all times. But would that do the uh, trick yes. for you? Uh, no, because the, the, uh, you, you, you then have a basically a fixed axis between the star shade and the, the, the telescope uh, on the ground. So that's one part of the problem. But then the next part of the problem is that when the Earth then rotates, your star is still in that direction. Right. But, but, but everything, the whole axis has now, now rotated uh, with respect to that frame of reference. Uh, so that means that your star shade and your telescope are perfectly lined up, but not on the star, right. on some different, completely different part. Uh, of the universe, um, so that uh, doesn't do it. Um, basically, there are two known classes of orbits uh, that can do it, uh, that have been sort of shown to to work in, in, in theory, of course. But we understand the, the physics of orbital dynamics very well, so uh, they, they most likely work also in in reality. Um, so one is basically um, if you have the the, the uh, star shade. In, a, uh, in an Earth trailing orbit at a certain uh, appropriate distance from the Earth. Uh, an Earth trailing orbit, by the way, is not a stable orbit. So mm -hmm. over time, you have to make little corrections to actually stay in this, in this Earth trailing orbit. Mm -hmm. But it's actually a, a very, that, that requires a very small amount of fuel uh, relative to all the other operations uh, that you have to do. So that's not a big uh, issue. Um, so you can do that uh, and, and, and basically both uh, keep the star shade stable on a given target for a certain amount of time, and then uh, being able to move up, move on to another target with some small uh, sort of corrections to what your culture is doing at the right time so that you can then observe uh, another target and, and so on, uh, moving uh, forwards in time. Um, a limitation of that is that with this Earth trailing orbit, uh, basically, if you wanted to observe something that was at the celestial pole, let's say, let's say you wanted to observe the pole star. Um, now we have a big problem because the pole star is in, in the wrong direction for, for, for this orbit to ever line up. Right. So basically, um, you're, you're, um, with, with this class of orbits, you're stuck to within something like plus minus five degrees of the celestial equator. So the celestial right. equator is the, 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 the sort of if you take the equator of Earth and you project that out into 
uh, space. That's what we call the, the celestial uh, equator. Uh, now there's lots of nice stars within plus minus five degrees of the celestial equator, but of course it's not every star. For example, you know, Alpha Centauri is a super interesting system. You could never observe it with these right. kinds of orbits because it just, it's just not at the right place in the sky. Uh, to do that right now you were mentioning two orbits so this is one the earth trailing orbit what's the other orbit exactly. so that was that was one class of orbits and then the other class of orbits uh, is a set of, of highly elliptical orbits so the the, the the earth trailing one was the one that i developed back in back in 2007 uh, these elliptical orbits have been uh, uh, developed by by john mather uh, of course in nobel prize winning john mather indeed um so that that then basically you're, you're at, a, at a highly elliptical orbit, uh, which means that uh, the way the way elliptical orbits work is that uh, at, so, so it's, it's an Earth-bound orbit. So uh, it, it, it's, it's sometimes very close to the Earth and sometimes uh, very far from the Earth. Um, and so basically, it, it, when it's very far from the Earth, uh, because of, of how the the, or, the velocities work, basically it moves very very fast when it's close to the Earth, and it moves much slower when it's uh, far from the Earth. Uh, so, so by having the right kind of, of eccentricity and so on, so eccentricity being how elliptic the orbit is, uh, you can match up the speeds so that when it's at its basically farthest point away from the Earth, um, it lines up both in position and in velocity such that uh, you can keep the, the, hmm. the shadow in the right place over the telescope. And, and would that let you get away from the plane of the ecliptic? Yes, it would. Uh, on the other hand, it, it's more expensive in terms of fuel in that setup to change from one object to the next. So that means that for the same amount of fuel, it would probably get fewer targets right. uh, with that, but you, but you could choose which ones they were. So really at, at the end of the day, if, if you wanted to make a choice between two orbits, between these two classes of orbits, it's gonna be a question of, okay, what's the science case actually that you're looking for? Right. Are you looking for a few targets that you're really, really sure are very interesting? Uh, then these elliptic orbits are going to be the best. Uh, if you want, if you want to have something more like a statistical survey or something, you want to observe more objects, but you don't, you can't really choose exactly which ones. Um, then uh, as an Earth trailing orbit is uh, preferred. So okay, so I'm sort of imagining we we take this this star shade, we roll it up, we put it in a rocket, launch it into whichever orbit has been decided by the Council of Scientists. Uh, it deploys this giant star shade and it is now in orbit. Now, can it be used by multiple observatories or is it just tied to one observatory? Uh, it, it could be used by multiple observatories uh, on Earth. Um, but uh, only one at a time. So, uh, and, and, and you would need to know in advance which telescope uh, you're going to use because you, you have to, far in, far in advance, be able to plan where the, the star shade is going to be uh, at, at any point in time. Right. So basically, um, and then it depends on, on, on a bunch of other uh, factors. Like for example, if you design your star shade to work perfectly with the VLT, uh, then you can probably make it work perfectly also with the super telescope or with the Gemini telescopes. Uh, you might have a difficult time getting it to work with the ELT, for example, because uh, basically the, w w when you're designing the optimal parameters for the star shade, one of those parameters that you're, that you're playing with is how big is the star shade in right. diameter. Right. 
Um, and basically, uh, if, if, you, if you're using only a small telescope, then the, the shadow that you need to cast doesn't need to be that big. You don't need to make the star shade that big necessarily. Whereas if you're going to make it work with a bigger telescope, you're going to need a, a, a bigger star shade. So you cast a bigger telescope, bigger shadow because you need all of your telescope to be inside of, of the shadow. Right. So, so roughly the, the size of the star shade is tied to the size of the telescope. Uh, yes. So, yeah. so, so that's one aspect that ties the, the size of the occulter. Uh, sorry, the star shade. It's, I mean, I'm using the terms occulter and star yeah, shade yeah, interchangeably. Yeah. Um, Another is basically um, ha another aspect has to do with what kind of contrast that you're actually aiming for, because uh, the, the bigger the star shade is, the, the bigger the contrast also, provided that the distance right. between the telescope and the star shade uh, is fixed. If you, if you keep those fixed, then making right. the star shade bigger will, will make your contrast deeper. Right. So basically, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it, there's, a, there's a trade off in how big you, you make your, your by the way, j just to because when I when I say it like that, people might wonder, you know, well, why don't you just use make this starship really big and get really great contrast? But the problem is that the bigger you make the, the star shade, you also get a worse so-called inner working angle, uh, which uh, the inner working angle is basically how close to the star can you look for planets? And if you have a really big star shade, then you're blocking off a really big part of the field of view, right. and then you won't be able to see uh, many of the planets. So, so there's a, there's a, a trade off there that you have to make. Right. And so then, you know, you talk about this idea of, of the fuel use, how much fuel will you be using to move to different targets? What's the, the lifetime limit, do you think? Yeah, so so basically, um, I mean, one of the tricky things about space, right, is that there's, there's no friction or anything like that. You have nothing to, uh, to push against. I mean, if, if you, if you want to walk somewhere there where you can push against the floor and that helps you get to, to where you want to go. Uh, or, you know, if, if you, uh, if you go in a car, you can you know, burn fuel to make a you know, pistons move and, and, and that will make your wheels move and you can, you can move forward. Uh, in space, you don't have those options. The only option really, well, that's the truth in modification, but in practice for these purposes, the only option that you have if you want to move in, in, in that direction is that you need to expel something in the other direction. Right. And preferably at, at, at a large speed so that you can, uh, you know, you can get a, you can get a lot of momentum in, in that direction, which by conservation of momentum will get, will get you moving in the other direction. Uh, so if you want to move a big mass in this direction, uh, you, you, you know, you don't want to preferably expel a huge mass in the other direction because that will cost a lot. Of, I mean, this is the fuel that we're talking about, right? It's basically the fuel is not really the, like the, maybe the technically correct, maybe you should call it propellant. Propellant, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so you want to send that, uh, you, you don't want to send too much mass, so you really want to send it in a high velocity so that you can get a, 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 a big momentum in, in, in the other, other direction. Um, so basically, uh, that's the only thing that you can do. And that means that you have to carry basically a lot of propellant with you in the end. Um, and so, uh, well, so, so for example, uh, John Mather and his group have, have made a, a sort of detailed calculation about the, the, the fuel budget in, in their concept. Um, and so in, in that, I, I don't remember the exact numbers because it was a while since, since I read the report, uh, but basically uh, the, 
dry mass of the occulter, and when I say dry mass, I mean the mass of the, the starshade itself, not counting the fuel that it mm -hmm. also has to carry with it, um, is, I think, something like 12,000 kilograms, which is, is a whole lot That's of mass. That's a lot. It's, it's a whole lot of mass. Yeah. Um, and it, it carry, it's meant to carry several thousand kilograms of uh, fuel. Um, and the way that that works out, if you, have, if you sort of think of, of realistic scenarios, it depends a lot on, on, on how you do things. Um, but basically, it, that's enough to observe maybe 10 systems with, 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 their, right. uh, with their setup. Now, uh, one of the in the chat, Av Scott and Flower just asked, "Why not use uh, the starshade as a light sail? So, is there some way to do double duty where you could have it be a light sail?" That's that's an excellent question, uh, and 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 that that's sort of why I said it's a truth with modification that the only way that you can move in space is to expel something, because another way, of course, to do it is to use the sun in one way or another, either by by letting the, the light from the sun exert a press pressure on. Your, 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 your vehicle. And of course, if you have a star shade, I mean, that, that's basically like a solar sail, right? It's a big flat surface, basically. Yeah. Um, so so, so, so it, it, it's kind of a natural way to think about it. Couldn't, couldn't we use the, the pressure from the solar light to actually maneuver uh, this thing? Um, and unfortunately, you can't because you just can't generate enough uh, thrust. Right. I mean, the, 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 the solar, the, the uh, solar, I'm looking for the English word for, for what I'm, the, the, right. the solar light pressure, so to speak, is just not, not high enough, even though you have this big collecting area, uh, to push such a big mass mm. uh, in, in the direction that you want fast enough. So, so let's see, we've sort of talked about all of the engineering challenges and, and what it's going to be and how it all is going to work, but, but let's talk about the benefits. So what does a starshade you, you know, working as an occulter for, say, the extremely large telescope, what does what benefit does that give that telescope? Yeah, so basically you can, well, for, in terms of the telescope, it basically opens up a completely new range that you just cannot observe otherwise. I mean, basically, once you have blocked out this star, it's basically like you're, you're, you're looking at, at you're, you have your, your huge telescope and you're looking at, at free, free lights from this uh, this planetary system that, that's around the star. So basically any planet that's around there that's reasonably bright, you're going to see it. Um, the, the star shade, once it's unfolded, it has very few moving parts. It needs to be able to, 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 uh, to uh, use its engines to take it to different locations. But it's not, you know, it, it doesn't need to have, have any other moving parts um, inside of it. So right. it, it's, it. It becomes very robust to, to, um, to everything that can go wrong in space, which is a lot. So the, like, like I know that say the extremely large telescope, which is going to be a 39 meter telescope is equipped with a coronagraph. And so it is built into the telescope itself. So it is already, I mean, one of its science goals is to be able to look at sun-like stars and be able to detect the, the earth-like planets around it. So this is the, this is the job and the work that it's already going to be going to be doing. So I guess, you know, taking spectra, it's going to be able to determine some of the chemical characteristics of these planets that are orbiting around these, these stars. So wh what additional benefit do you get from that starshade? Because it sounds like you only get 10 shots, say, to super zoom into the planets around some star. 
so basically, uh, it, it's correct what you say. So the, the ELT has a, has a, a chronograph. It has, in fact, I mean, several planned instruments that will have very sophisticated uh, chronographs. Um, and uh, so the, one of the ambitions, I mean, for, for sure, one of the ambitions is to image planets. And you could say one of the ambitions also is to image Earth-like planets, maybe even in, in the habitable zone. Uh, and that is, is uh, true, that that is, the, uh, that is an ambition, but it is very challenging and it's only really feasible for uh, in, in very special cases. So, mm -hmm. for example, if Alpha Centauri A or Alpha Centauri B has Earth-like planets around it, then you can probably dete detect them reasonably uh, with, with uh, the, the, the ELT. Um, but, and, and there are a few sort of nearby sort of uh, so-called M-dwarf uh, systems, like Proxima Centauri, for example, uh, where you could do the same thing. But after that, you're kind of stuck hmm. because uh, that, then if, if you go to even slightly, far, slightly more distant systems, uh, you sort of run out of, of, of space with respect to, to what the ELT can do uh, by itself. So, uh, I mean, I certainly hope that Alpha Centauri has planets around it because it would make our lives easier in so many ways. Um, but we can't guarantee it, of course. Mm. Uh, and so it, it's, it, it, if there are no planets there, then we're out of options. And in any case, you know, it's, it's, that's just one system. And in the end, uh, you want to be able to, do, to study much more systems in order to, to really say something about the, the prevalence of, of, of Earth-like planets and Earth-like planets in the habitable zone and the prevalence of potentially even life uh, in the universe. You can't just have, you know, one right. example. And so, you know, you talk about, say, Proxima Centauri, Alpha Centauri, so let's say four and a half light years away. What feasible distance would, would like, the raw extremely large telescope be able to observe out to? 10 light years, 20 light years, like at a certain uh, point? Oh, well, well, I mean, five light years is basically the limit. Of, really? Of the, of the ELT in terms, if, if you're really talking, I mean, it depends on, on exactly what science case we're talking about. Right. So if you're talking about Earth-like planets in the habitable zone, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you can't really go much farther than that. Hmm. And so you're going to really tap out with with how far you can go with, with the extremely large telescope. And so then if we use the, the version with the starship, and I'm sort of assuming that TESS and aerial and, and all of these different space and ground observatories have done all of the legwork. They've found all the promising candidates. They've been observed with James Webb. They've been followed on, you know, followed on, followed on. And then you get like 10 shots of the best telescope, most powerful telescope humanity's ever built match with the best way to block the light. How far out does that give us? Uh, so then you, you, you can go out to, uh, and now I have to make the conversion. I mean, you, you know, I, I can only think in parsecs, so I have to make the, a, a little bit of a Just divide by 3.26. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, so, so basically uh, you can go out to, in, 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 the, in the sort of uh, Mather concept, if we call it that, uh, you can go out to, to 20 parsecs, so let's say 60 light years. Wow. Um, and with, with the, the, the earth trailing one, uh, you can go out to uh, 50 parsecs. So something like 150. 150 light years. And there's at that point now you're looking at millions of, of stars and, and not, well, it, it depends on how you select them, of course, Yes, but, but uh, it's, you're certainly looking at hundreds of well-suited, uh, sun-like stars 
in, in this strip that, that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. And of course, thousands more outside of, of this strip, yeah. That's very cool. Um, so then, like, what about budget? What do you think, you know, people done a preliminary budget of, of how expensive it would be? Would it, would it just literally just be as expensive as launching a Starshade that would go with James Webb or go with, say, Habex or some other mission like that? Well, so th this is always the, the dilemma, right? Is that nobody actually knows. <laughs> yeah. James Webb, the billion dollar spacecraft, the billion dollar James Webb spacecraft yeah, that will exactly. launch in the year 2010. Yeah, uh, I think um, there are certainly prospects for the, the star shade alone with a, a, a telescope on the ground uh, to be cheaper than uh, I mean, so I, I, I think certainly if you're sort of comparing apples to apples in terms of the science case, hmm. so what you can actually do uh, with, with the mission, and then you can always think about scaled down versions, and that, that's usually easier to do, like, like Habex, for example, is an example of what I would call a, a scaled down version of, 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 of something like Louvoir, mm -hmm. uh, which is, is a sort of more an, an ambitious uh, starshade type mission. Um, then, then you can probably get away cheaper in space, uh, but then you're very limited uh, in terms of, of, of what you can do. So th there's, there's always going to be this sort of uh, trade-off and, and a huge uncertainty factor, really, in, in what, the, what the cost would actually be. Because it's, it's, uh, re I mean, it, it really is the case that when, you, when you're doing something new like this, I mean, you can always make estimations, but you right. have to be prepared that it can be a factor of several Right. But it but it does feel like, you know, when you're looking, say, a mission like Habex or a mission like Louvoir, you've got to launch both the telescope and the telescope's got to unfold or be constructed in space. You've got to launch the starshade. The starshade's got to arrive at its destination. If either half of this doesn't work, then potentially the mission itself is not going to do its job. But in this case, you can you really just got to you've already got a beautiful working, extremely large telescope. And all you've got to do is launch an occulter. And I'm guessing you could even sort of make your way towards it, start with a smaller occulter that's maybe closer, or figure out a way to sort of split the difference until we've mastered this technology, because it's still even theoretical. I mean, we don't even know if these occulters are going to work the way the math says they should until they're out in space. And there's no way to test on Earth. No, exactly. I mean, you can do lab tests, of course, but it's not going to give you the full story uh, of, of how it actually uh, be behaves in, in, in space. Yeah. Uh, no, that's right. Um, and I mean, it, it, it's really, uh, I mean, if, if you just think of, okay, what, what's the most expensive part of the JWST? I mean, people might think it's the cost of launching the telescope or something like that, but it's really the testing and the integration of the telescope because it has so many moving parts and so many things that have to work perfectly in, an, in a telescope optical system uh, that if you want to make sure that it works perfectly um, it, that's that's an enormous task and it's enormously expensive as we've seen with with uh, with uh, JWST and all of that is basically gone if you're if you're using a telescope yeah. on the ground because it's it, it, it already exists you know it exists you know it works yeah you know if it breaks you can fix it um, so, so it, it's, it's, it certainly has the potential to be a lot cheaper and a lot more uh, robust. And could you scale the idea down with a smaller telescope? So if you had, you know, if you cast a smaller shadow with a smaller star shade, then you could use a smaller telescope. Exactly. That's exactly right. So, 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 uh, in, in this paper that I, I 
published now, for the, which was uh, uh, basically ESA, the European Space Agency. Uh, sorry, this is a little bit of a sidetrack from your question, but I'm, I'm just setting a bit of a background. So the, the European Space Agency um, made a call for ideas, basically. Uh, they're called white papers. So you send in uh, white papers with, with, with your concept and, and how it would work and, and so on. Um, and when that process was starting to finish, they sort of asked those of us who had written white papers to, to, to write an article about it to be, to be published. Um, so, so I wrote this paper, which, which was the one you referred to in, in, in the beginning uh, that you saw. Um, so in that paper, I, I uh, discussed this. Um, and basically, I, the, my line of thinking there was, OK, if we really want to, for example, show that star shades work just as a concept and do some, you know, also do some really cool science with it, like what's the cheapest and what's the most simple thing yeah. that we can possibly do. I mean, you, you, because, of course, you know, you, you could just send out a, a starship and not really have much of a science objective, but that would be expensive and, you know, it would be very hard to rally people around this thing if you're not actually going to observe something that's, that, that's actually scientifically interesting. Um, so, yes, so, so, so then what I uh, came up with is that the, the cheapest thing, certainly, that I can think of is to basically observe Alpha Centauri, only Alpha Centauri, but both stars. Um, and so basically what, what you, you need two, two star shades for this, hmm. but the star shades can be quite small. So, uh, together, I, it's very fair to say that they would cost a lot less than one of these big star shades that, that we're talking about, both in terms of, you know, well, in terms of everything, in terms of launching them and everything. Um, you don't need to worry about lots of the things, lots of the caveats that I've been talking about, like going from one star to the next star, right? which is the most uh, expensive maneuver. Um, because you're just getting a chance to observe it after, with every orbit. Uh so, so in, in this Alpha Centauri yeah, uh, yeah. case, basically what, what you're looking at, at is a, a, a one-shot option. So you, you launch or two occulters uh, in a highly eccentric orbit, so something similar to, to, uh, to the mother uh, concept. Um, and then you have one shot, but you, you, you take that shot in, uh, when the um, star shades are at the maximum mm. separation from Earth in the orbit. Uh, and then you can very easily get uh, get them to stay there for one hour. Wow! Okay. So, so you and, and then you observe with a VLT, which you can fit into the shadow of these um, occulters. Um, the VLT has a, a, a fantastic instrument uh, that's called Muse, mm -hmm. which already exists. So there's zero speculation here. That's an instrument that exists, and we know exactly what it can do. Um, and with that, you can get. If there's an Earth-like planet around Alpha Centauri A or Alpha Centauri B, uh, you can get an excellent spectrum <sighs> over basically all of the all of the visible light range, um, and you don't need to send up any telescope. Right, you only need to send up these star shades, which are based on also on technology that people have worked on a lot by now. I mean, NASA has been yeah. putting a lot of, of thoughts because they're thinking about these this HabX missions and things like that, just into the star shade concept in general. You can just use the concept that already exists. Um, and uh, as far as I could foresee, I mean, it's, it's, I'm, not a, I'm not an economist, but, but everything comes together to something that, that, that I think would be actually quite cheap. Would you get, I mean, with an hour of observ observation time, would you get kind of the, a snapshot of the whole system, like every 
bright planet that are that's orbiting Alpha Centauri? Yes. Yes. I mean, you, you, you would get, I mean, if, if you had an Earth and a Venus, you would see the Earth and the Venus, for right. example. And the Jupiter. Uh, a Jupiter, sure. I mean, yeah. we, we have pretty strong indications that there's no Jupiter uh, because that's, uh, people have been doing rate mm -hmm. velocity measurement of the system and they would have seen a Jupiter most likely. Uh, so, so there's probably no Jupiter hiding there, but there could be like a, a Neptune or something like that. Uh, you know, let's say you had a Neptune that's uh, three astronomical units or something, you could easily see it, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I'm always really fascinated by is when spacecraft outlive their original design parameter. Um, Spirit and Opportunity, instead of doing three months, did years. Uh, and so there's got to be ways that you could use those spacecraft after they did their they took their one shot, gave you an hour of, of observing time. I mean, they're going to naturally wander in front of other things. We see natural occultations all the time that astronomers use to to observe the atmosphere of Pluto, things like that. So would you still have other random things that you're, you're going to be keeping track of them and seeing what they're occulting and maybe something interesting will happen? Um, so it, it, it's not a it's not a sort of plan that's that has been actively pursued. I mean, so, so if, if we're thinking about the, 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 this sort of scaled down Alpha Centauri mission that I mentioned, you really uh, literally only have one shot because you're sending it up in such an elliptical orbit that the closest passage is inside of the Earth's atmosphere. Oh, so they just crash back into the Earth when they're, when they're done. Right back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for, for the other concepts, yeah, I mean, you're still going to have um, the occulter out there, but the problem is that you really have to if you don't have uh, the, the fuel to decide where you're going to be at, a, at any given time, uh, it's a very small probability that you, that you line up right. uh, perfectly with something. Um, I mean, it, it's, you could always think about stuff like, uh, you know, it, if, you're set, if you have a, a space telescope up, uh, you know, you could, uh, maybe you could line that up with, with the shadow or something like that. But, but uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a difficult problem, I would say. Right. I mean, I sort of think of like, on the one hand, you have examples of say the Chandra x ray observatory where they were they just as the telescope was slewing from position to position, they were just gathering all the photons from those slews. And they were eventually able to build really interesting maps of the x ray background radiation of the of the entire galaxy. But another sort of more extreme example, say gravitational microlensing, where you detect exoplanets because two stars have perfectly aligned up, and you will never be able to observe those planets again, because you needed those two stars. And so I'm sort of envisioning these situations where you've got ground telescope, occulter, star system, that's at the right distance, but also the right sized occulter and you know that, that that everything is lining up i guess you you just can't get those because the 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 math is so remote you're not going to get a lot of useful science unless the occulter is exactly where you want it to be uh, no exactly I mean, so, so so basically it's it's your kind of if if, if you're imagining kind of you know shooting a laser or something at a star i mean that sort of sets the line that that you have to line up and, and you, re you really have to point that laser, so to speak, very accurately to really get, get an occulter really in front of the star. But I mean, something that, that uh, you could, this is just actually something that when you were talking, I was thinking about it now. I mean, something that you, <laughs> that you, that you could do if you're talking about reusing. I mean, say, say you're, you're launching one of these concepts uh, and it turns out 
really successful and the occulter is still out there. I mean, you, you could think about just going up there and, and refuel it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Going, going up with a servicing mission, like the servicing mission that they've done for, for Hubble. I mean, basically what happened right was that they had to service Hubble in the end. Um, and they, they wanted it to work, so, so, so they, they went up and, and did it, and then they've served it, serviced it several times to, to upgrade instruments and so on, um, because it's been such a success, right? So, so once you're in that position where you really have a successful mission, uh, probably, you know, you, you, you could have the opportunity because I mean, yeah. it's going to be there, so you, you might... Yeah, I talked to the people from working on the James Webb. And of course, there are no plans to refuel James Webb. But at the same time, James Webb, on the bottom of it, it does have the docking port that's used to attach to its upper stage, it does have the fuel lines that run through that in order to fuel it up because they fuel it up as they're getting ready to launch it. And so once James Webb is out there in space, it still has all this hardware configured onto it. And if you did send a follow on module, you could refuel James Webb. And I would imagine the exact same situation with this with this mission that it's going to have all of the the fuel hardware mounting hardware that was used. And so in theory, you could send a, a spacecraft to go and, and refuel it from time to time. I mean, I, I mean, but we could say that about a whole bunch of missions. I mean, I think we're going to enter an age where refueling spacecraft becomes, you know, with large reusable spacecraft, say with Starship and so on, that maybe things do become a lot less expensive to be able to refuel. And it becomes much more feasible to think about these things as lasting for much longer periods of time as opposed to one shot. I mean, just hearing the one shot just makes me feel sad. (laughs) I mean, an hour of observing mapping out all the planets at Alpha Centauri sounds wonderful. But then knowing these things are going to crash back into the atmosphere just makes me sad. But there's no... Yeah, yeah, no, and 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 it would be. I mean, it's if you're thinking some, about something like the the the, the mother uh, concept, um, it would be a lot easier to refuel than something like the yeah. JWST because it's in an Earth-bound orbit. Yeah, whereas JWST is in 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 in, in a so-called Lagrangian orbit, so it's way much farther away from. Uh, so how's been? How has the reception been for this for the concept, especially getting uh, Mather on board, and that's got to help with some some star power. Yeah, uh, I mean it's 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 very mixed. I would say. I, I think it's people are either very enthusiastic or they say, "Can like can that really work?" Um, and so it's it's. I think it's it's. What you really need is is more studies. Exactly what what NASA is doing now. I think, uh, as you say, right, the, the the fact that you have someone like like Mather uh, on board um, means that you have a channel. Uh, through which you know you you, you can actually de- develop these con- concepts uh, properly, which is which is really what we need. You know, it's mm-hmm. because uh, as as sort of astrophysicists, we can we can we can come up with ideas and we can check that they work in in, in theory, uh, but in the end there has to be an interplay between engineers and um, astrophysicists uh, to 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 get to get the thing to work right, and that has to happen at the space agency level. So either at the European Space Agency or or at uh, the, or at NASA or some other. Have uh, you, have you proposed it as a, for a NIAC grant through NASA? Uh, no, I have, I have not. I'm, 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 I'm sort of expecting that that's a channel that that's yeah. Uh, John would, would yeah, a few hundred uh, thousand dollars to to take a look at it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, very no, it's, cool. It's, you, you know, it, it's the 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 a, a bit of a problem there in my experience is that that if you're trying to uh, do sort of European-US 
collaborations on these kinds of, of, of sort of engineering astrophysics man matters, it becomes very difficult because uh, the US has a lot of restrictions in terms of which information they are given are allowed to give out yep. uh, to, to, to non-US uh, citizens. It's just as, just as a brief little anecdote, you know, after I uh, published this paper in, in, in 2007, which was my first study on the subject, uh, some, uh, several people contacted me and, and said, you know, we should, we should send in some, some uh, you know, uh, I, uh, concept idea to, to, to ESA about this. There was a call for proposal. You know? And, and uh, so I, I started collaborating with some Americans and we had a, a meeting. And I, I basically said, you know, they asked me, could I lead the proposal? And I said, sure, you know, I've never done that before, but I can try it. Uh, and in the first meeting, I, I basically said, you know, I'm going to need the, 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 the mass and an approximate cost of this mission. And they said, well, we're not really allowed to tell you that. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, so that, at that point, I kind of threw up my hands and said, okay, it's, it's, uh, this, is, this, is for, this is for someone else to try. Yeah. Um, but it, 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 it is very difficult. So, so I, think, I think if it's going to be done, it's going to be done sort of within the US or within Europe. And then right. when you have a developed concept, then you can have you know, joint missions and things yeah. like that. That's a lot easier. That's cool. My, my, you know what? My money's on the Japanese. That's 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 who I would take the proposal to. They they I yeah. I am so fascinated by all of the cool missions that the Japanese are working on. They're willing to really try out wacky ideas, and I think, you know, they've got the Subaru telescope. It's the right size. I think this is your. I think this is your shot. Go talk to the, go talk to the Japanese. Uh, well, Doctor Jansen, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I I. I you know, put me in the enthusiastic camp. I'm pretty excited about about what you're proposing, um, and I am really looking forward to the the progress that you make. If people want to follow what you're working on or keep track of the project, where should they go and 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 keep an eye on it? Uh, well, so I, I would say the first thing would be to just read the paper uh, that's out there. I mean, it, it's it's on on the the archive. That's uh, those of the, the readers who are, are scientists will probably know that uh, resource. But it's also available through open access yes. on, on at the, at the Experimental Astronomy Journal. Which is yeah, so I'll put a link in the show notes to the actual link to the paper. And as as I said, you know, as you said, the the paper is open access, so anyone can go and read it. And and it's a very readable paper. It goes into some math, but you get the gist of the of the conversation as well. And it's an absolutely fascinating conversation. And I'm really looking forward to anyone putting up a starshade. Uh, at some point in the future. So, uh, Dr. Nietzsche, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Really appreciate it, and good luck with your mission. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much. Bye.